Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, what you're about to hear is Class 5, Part 2 of a series of talks I gave at Loyola Marymount University in the spring of 07 on the Eightfold Path. This is the last talk in that series, so this is Class 5, Part 2. Okay, what do we need to do to take this stuff with us? And that was one of the questions I had, too, when I first came to Buddhism. What did I need to do to become a Buddhist? Now, I'm not assuming any of you can become a Buddhist, but you might want to enhance your spiritual practice. So what would I suggest or recommend for you to do? Uh, the first thing I would recommend is Amazon.com or my website with the free ebooks. It's good to have some reading. It's good to be able to investigate through books and articles aspects of Buddhism that you found fascinating, interesting, or that you sort of hesitated uh, with because it felt uncomfortable. So it's nice to investigate through books and articles in privacy of your own space. The next thing you're going to need is a teacher. And teachers can be hard to find because you might want a really good teacher. And they're very difficult to find. So sometimes a teacher can be just someone who knows more than we do, who's been doing it longer than we have, and can sort of, you know, help us through the little rough spots in our own practice. Most of all, it seems to me, Buddhist practice is sitting alone with others. Our practice will be mostly done by ourselves, and, and that's not necessarily bad. It's joyful, though, to get with a group who's doing the same thing you are, having the same issues and challenges you are. Maybe they can make your journey a little easier. Maybe they can share some of their experiences with you so you realize you're not completely out of sync with what everybody else is doing. And the third thing is you really need to have your own practice. You need books. Books might include sutras or commentary or overviews by other people. You need to have a teacher and you need to have a practice. And a practice... Uh, I guess is the most important component because it's something you're going to be doing the rest of your life. And so you need to find sacred space in your house, apartment, wherever you live. And if you don't have sacred space, you need to make it sacred. You need to get that corner, that closet you haven't used for a while, and, and make a little space for reflection or prayer, meditation, contemplation, concentration, whatever you want to call it, you need to have that space, and then you need to keep returning to that space and re-energizing it, shooting it up with your spiritual energy. So now it just sort of vibrates all by itself. And when you come to your space, you know what to do. It's now time to sit or kneel and bow or chant or just sit quietly. Some people like candles. Candles are nice. I like candles, too, but candles cause fires, you know? And it bothers me sometimes in our old houses when people come and they start lighting candles and they've got to go walk into the room and they've got 30 candles lit. And they go, oh, look how nice this is. 
I'm thinking, yeah, the insurance and the people homeless because the place burned down. So we can use lamps or lights. They have some wonderful lamps and lights that can give that same kind of feeling to the situation. Flowers are good. I like flowers. Flowers teach us a lot. Uh, one of the things that took me a long time to appreciate was the fact that you, you don't kill flowers, you harvest them. Because I thought it was just an odd thing to show your love or appreciation to another human being and give them a bunch of dead flowers. And I'm thinking, you know, how about live flowers so they can continue but no, we like to cut them and put them in sugar water and then say, here, this is how much I love you. I've got dead flowers for you. Oh, thank you. So the thing I learned about the dead flowers is that they change quickly. The water that's used in those flower vases after a few days, the stench is remarkably repulsive. And, and that's good. And then those wonderful radiant colors just sort of get dull and you this starts to wilt and drop to the floor. And that's exactly what we're going to do one day. So for me, when I have flowers on the altar, it's my teaching of impermanence. I marvel at the beauty in the beginning and I just am so sad at the end because there's nothing there that I would even want or be attached to. And then I look in the mirror and go, see, one day, you'll be that flower. So flowers are nice. I like incense as well. I like especially Indian incense because it reminds me of all the other times I've smelled Indian incense. The variety of venues I've been in while incense was burning. I have nice memories of that. I also like incense because at our Zendo, the dog and the cat come and listen to my Dharma talks. And so you've got the smell of the dog and you get the smell of the cat and you have the smell of 20 people with their shoes off. And so incense serves a function. In the old days, they used to have fires that they'd throw things in as offerings to the gods and the smoke then would rise to the heavens. That's how the offerings got to the heavens. And so when I look at the incense burning, it is sort of like offering offering this wonderful smell or scent to the gods. At our center, on our altar, you will find food. And the reason we have food on the altar is because we are feeding the ancestors. We don't want hungry ancestors. And so we have oranges, sometimes apples. Uh, during Halloween, we'll have pumpkins and squash. It's festive. I thought it was sort of an odd thing to do, initially, because I'm thinking, how could the ancestors eat that anyway? But then I thought to myself, isn't it wonderful to even think about your ancestors? You know, when's the last time you thought about your grandma who passed away 20 years ago? And yet when you look at the food on the altar, those thoughts of all those past family members come back. You wonder how they're doing. <laughs> and so it's a way of staying connected to all those generations who came before you. Food on the altar. Took me a long time to figure that out. So our altar is is really a you know it's big. We have like a five foot Buddha and it's fiberglass painted gold, so it looks really impressive. And uh, all those things are designed to change our consciousness, 
to change the way we think about ourselves. We sometimes have bodhisattvas. We have the bodhisattva of compassion. We have Ananda on our altar, the cousin and right-hand monk of the Buddha. We have Manjushri. We have uh, Jizu. Jizu is a cool little bodhisattva, Japanese Jizu. He chose to be reborn in hell. When he died, this bodhisattva said, I want to be reborn in hell because that's where everybody suffers. So he's down there right now, working hard. And so these icons, for me, have become a mirror. The mirror is reflecting my potential. I have the potential to become as compassionate as Kuan Yin Bodhisattva, to become as wise as Manchusri to become as caring and loving as Jizu and, and, and choose hell over heaven, to be of service to other sentient beings. That's all inside of me. That potential is there already. And it's just got this big crust over it. it, it I need to chip that away. And then the perfection of my Buddha nature shines forth. So for me, Buddha nature is not a soul or something that exists independently. For me, Buddha nature is the potential we all have to be a perfect human being. And this practice, this Eightfold Path, these Four Noble Truths, all the commentaries, all the sutras, are really telling us, hey, you're already there. You've got everything you need to give your life vest to the person next to you, or to get through the day and be happy. You've got it all there. You just got to get rid of a few things. You just got to get rid of a few things. And your daily practice reminds you that that's the journey you've chosen. Now, let me warn you that when and if you decide to start the journey, you can never unstart it. Words of warning. It took me a couple years to figure that out. And I woke up in the middle of the night saying, what the hell have I done to myself? I can never go back to be the way I used to be. I'm stuck now. And I can't even stay where I am because that's always changing. The only thing I can do is continue to go forward. One foot in front of the other. Going through all these trials and tribulations. I can't get off the path. I'm stuck. I can't forget what I've learned. I can't forget the experiences I've had. Isn't that just the worst feeling? We can never go home again. And nobody told me that. They said, oh, come on the journey. Get on the path. It's wonderful. You'll like it. There are times in this journey where you don't like it. There are times in this journey where you are so confused and so unsure of the next move that it drives you crazy. And that's so nice to have these books of Dharma to just sort of read through and, and find that peace again. And it tells you it's going to be okay. Thousands and millions of people before you have walked the same path. And they've become better for it. And you too, once you get past this little dip in the road, will be better for it as well. But when, if you have a teacher... You can ask your teacher, what the hell do I do now? And the teacher hopefully will give you some instruction or encouragement or just be your cheerleader and say, good job, keep going. 
Sometimes that's all you need. But the spiritual path has its own momentum. In the beginning, it has none. And we're putting together our altar and finding our sacred space, and we've got our books, and we found our teacher, and we're practicing every day. And now it starts to have its own momentum. And now there's a day when you don't want to practice, and yet you still go and meditate. Because you can't not meditate. Because you realize if you don't meditate, some of that stuff just sort of goes away, and you've grown accustomed to feeling peaceful and being a bit more selfless than you used to be and having a bit more compassion and maybe having some insights and wisdom that you never had before. And you realize that is because you're practicing. And if you stop practicing, you might lose some of that. And you don't really want to go back to the way you used to be because you feel really comfortable right now. It's nice to have a little synchronicity in your life. It's nice to walk in a room and see, see people you know instead of strangers. And you've never met them before, but you know them all. That's a nice feeling. So this momentum starts to build, and now you have no choice. Now you're stuck. So words of warning. I think any spiritual path works that way. And what happens next is your spirituality, your practice, your insights start to change you. And you notice the choices are being made in a little different way now then maybe you don't need to be first in line, maybe you could just be second in line. You know, and you go, okay, yeah. You're not quite sure why that's the case, why it's more comfortable to be second than first, but it might have something to do with your spiritual practice. Your intuition might start to become exercised in a way it had never been before. And you start to be more sensitive to people around you. And whereas before, you could almost put your head in the sand and not notice their, their feelings or feel their pain or feel their anger, now it's right in your face and you're so sensitive. It's like you're just a raw nerve sometimes. And you go, oh man, this is so hard. Because I go in there and I see it and I know how they feel. And it makes me feel uncomfortable too and there's nothing I can do about it. You know? Yes. Please. I, I, I don't want to interrupt the flow of what you're saying. It's, it's, so nice. it's okay, a good flow, isn't it? Yeah, it was. <laughs> but I wanted to ask before we got to end. Um, it's kind of a, it's a big question. So, okay. Um, I don't feel like you have to address it. Okay. So, and it's something that all religions probably deal with. Or they do. Um, okay. So how does Buddhism make you accept how bad the world is? So, like, for example, my, my parents are Christian, and I would read the newspaper, and I'd say, Mom, it's terrible. Like, how can you, how can you believe in God that would create this world that's so much suffering and so awful? And just, why would, why would a God create that? And she said, oh, well, it's a broken world, and we live in a broken world, and just sort of, you have to accept it. Okay. So how does Buddhism, what's Buddhism say? Say about acceptance. Yeah. What does Buddhism say about acceptance? It's funny you brought that up because you know what? Tuesday night I was at UCLA at the Buddhist Club. And there was a student there who's studying comparative genocide. I didn't think they had a class in comparative genocide. And she is so disturbed by it. It's just, you know, she's finding out all these horrific facts about how cruel people are to each other in mass. 
And she said, does Buddhism have forgiveness? Do you guys ever forgive? Absolutely not, I say. We don't have forgiveness in Buddhism. Well, what do you have instead? What do you have instead of forgiveness? We have acceptance. And what's the difference between forgiveness and acceptance? Well, I was at a Buddhist-Catholic dialogue, and Father Gill, who's no longer with us, was there. And I was so proud because I had just figured this whole thing out. Forgiveness, acceptance, I saw the difference. And I said, Father Gill, what do you think about this, Father Gill? If you forgive somebody, the forgiver is higher than the forgiven. And you know what I figured out, Father Gill? I figured out if you accept somebody, you're equal. There's no higher or lower in acceptance. You're equal. What do you think about that, Father Gill? I said. (laughs) And Father Gill was so kind to me. He said, well, Kusla, you bring up a good point. But think about this. What's the one thing that forgiveness and acceptance does the same? They bring the relationship back into balance. That's why we have forgiveness. That's why we have acceptance. The Buddha would say this world is ultimately unsatisfactory. It's samsara. The Buddha would say this world is unsatisfactory because it was created. We're not blaming the creator, but anything that's created has to uncreate, has to die. And what we're seeing is birth and death all the time in this world. We just talked about Ann Cole Smith earlier. Birth and death occurs every moment of every day in this world of ours. And is it just? Is it equal? Well, a Buddhist wouldn't go there because in Buddhism we don't have justice. You know, we have karma instead. How do you come to a place of acceptance with this unsatisfactory world we live in and the way people treat each other? Well, I think for a Buddhist, the first part of acceptance would be patience. That you simply sit with it for a while. And you watch it arise, exist, and pass away. Everything. Arise, exist, and pass away. And and what you start to see is that's just sort of the way the whole world works. We're not saddled with the concept of divine creator. So we can't blame anybody. We just go, wow, look at this stuff. How can I make sense of it? What does it all mean? Well, I think for a Buddhist it means it's unsatisfactory. It validates the first truth over and over again. But to get to that place of acceptance, let me tell you an old story that I used to tell a lot. I was practicing acceptance and I was practicing patience. And I said to myself, in Los Angeles, what's the best way to practice patience? And I thought and I thought and I decided to go to stores, grocery stores, drug stores, 7-Eleven, and find the longest line and just wait in line and be patient. Oh, and it's so difficult because you look at the people, they're totally incompetent at the register. How did they ever get this job? And your urgency is just saying, come on, let's move faster. I got places to go and people to see. And if you can figure out how to be patient in line, that allows you to get to the next place of acceptance. Simply accepting the line the way it is and accepting everyone in the line the way they are. Not condoning them or condemning them, but this sort of 
in the present moment, this is what I'm working with. It's not going to be any other way than this. If I want it to be, if I wish it would be, if I hope it would be, no. This is what I'm working with. This is my line. These people are my line people. They are teaching me about patience. So in Buddhism, we have this thing like acceptance, of just trying to accept the way things are and working with that rather than forgiveness. And when you come to that place of acceptance, those relationships you have with all those things around you go back into balance. And they don't cause you any more suffering. And your urgency drains away. You now, you know, there's no other place to be in this present moment but right here, right now. How does it smell? How does it taste? How does it hear? How does it see? How does it touch? What is this moment? That's what I explained to the student at ACLA the other night. And that's why perhaps when she goes back to her comparative genocide class, she'll say, hey, that's the way this world is. Was that helpful at all? Yeah, it, it was. Again, I can relate to the class because I was a history major. So yeah. sort of like everything you learn is just, you don't know, like how do you, um, not interpret it, but how do you comprehend sort of this horribleness of it? But I guess. I don't think there's any way to do it. If, if we were to do it, um, we would say, um, does Hitler have Buddha nature? Okay. Yeah, he does. Hitler had the potential of being a perfect, perfect human being. But something went wrong. And the Buddhist would say, well, he had too much greed, too much hatred, and too much delusion. He was such an unskillful human being, and that's why millions of people died and suffered because of the way he acted. So you might say, well, I'm going to forgive him. I'm going to forgive him for everything he did so I can feel better about myself. Because if I hold this anger towards him, I can never find peace. And forgiveness allows me to find peace again. And the Buddhist might say, I'm going to accept him just the way he was. I had no expectations about him. I didn't think he was going to be any better or worse than he was. I'm just going to accept the situation and work with it. And if Hitler comes to the door, I got a pretty good idea of how he's thinking and what he's done. So I need to relate to him in that way. You know? <coughs> Jonathan, yeah. Not, but then forgiveness has, uh, like the reconciliation uh, in South Africa, yes. has a moral um, issue, right and wrong. Yes, it does. Acceptance doesn't. is not admitting that that person did something. <coughs> That's exactly right. And we don't have right and wrong. We lack right and wrong because we don't have a divine <laughs> lawgiver who decides for us what is right and what is wrong. We have karma. We have karma. We have a natural order of things, natural cause and consequence. But from a human, not a religious point of view. You're talking about like maybe a secular, relative perspective, right. living from in a community. Human, humanistic point of view. Yes. You see somebody does you wrong. Somebody comes up and smashes you in the face for right. no reason. Right. That is wrong done to you. That is very unskillful. Very unskillful. And it hurts. And I suffer. And I become a victim. 
And then I come to a place of acceptance. And then it still hurts, but I don't suffer. <laughs> so, and it works the same way if you're forgiving, but I, I like the idea about morality because acceptance lacks morality. Forgiveness is all about morality. So you're saying you would look at it as if what that punching your face was not right or wrong. It was... It was what happened. Now, let me give you a, a realistic example, though. I was at, in my neighborhood, we have a really nice El Pollo Loco. So I went there, I got the, the, the two-piece meal, the breast and the wing, you know, and the flour tortillas, and it was a hot day, and I was hungry, and I was saving the breast for later. Ran out of my Coke, though. So I went to the Coke machine to get some more Coke. I came back, the breast was gone. <laughs> and I'm looking around, and I see this homeless guy walking out the door, and in his right hand is my chicken breast. And he's walking across the parking lot. And I'm angry. And I can't accept that he took this without asking my permission. I can't accept it. And I'm not ready to forgive him. So what did I do? I opened the door and say, hey, you can have it. I'm giving it to you. And he didn't even turn around. He just kept walking. But what happened when I gave it to him? That means I wasn't a victim any longer. That means at that point, I could come to a place of acceptance with the situation. But I needed to be in charge. Why? Why? Ego. It was my ego. You know, my ego was hurt. Someone didn't respect my boundaries. That was my plate, my table, my chicken breast. I had a receipt. And you also said, I wasn't ready to forgive him. Couldn't forgive him, couldn't accept him. But I could give him the chicken. I could take the control back. And then I could come to a place of acceptance. And then I could relax into the situation and go, well, maybe I didn't need that chicken breast anyway. I feel okay. I'll get one tomorrow. But that's what I'm saying from a human point of view. That's a very human point. You're valid in your, in your feelings. Yes. And it's not, forget about right and wrong. It was human. It was human, and I wanted to come back into balance. I was out of balance, and I wasn't enlightened. I wasn't selfless. I admit it. I wanted to eat that chicken breast. I was still hungry. And I had the illusion that I owned it, but I was just using it until somebody wanted it more than I did. And he did. He hadn't eaten in a long time. He was hungry. I mean, anybody who's going to steal food off your plate while you're in the room, he's a hungry fellow. But even that, at that moment, didn't enter my mind. I mean, I wasn't a bodhisattva. I wasn't compassionate. I have trained myself over years of meditation and practice, and I still got angry because I was hungry. You know, I imagine if I had not been hungry, I could have been more skillful in my approach to it. But the only thing I could think of was I need to give it to him. I need to let go of my ownership. But that, you're not citing this as an example of acceptance. I'm citing this as a way that I came to acceptance. I, story. <laughs> I owned it. Fulfill the ego. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it, it was there. It was there. I, I was territorial. I felt like a victim. 
See, it just it just feels like, from a human point of view, what you felt was normal. Of course, it was. And then we can put the religious spin on it, and then us Catholics would say, "Yeah, you weren't Christ-like." Yeah, and I wasn't enlightened either. <laughs> Same thing. So exactly, and so so you're human. I was human, and I'm going to be human first until I achieve nirvana. And and I have to deal with that. I have to accept my limitations. I have to accept my ego still directing how I live in the world. And most of the time, it does a pretty good job. Sometimes it gets a little confused. But I, I, I got to be realistic. I can't say to myself, I'm any farther along than I am. Because I'd be lying or I'd be deceiving myself. So I've got to figure out how to come to a place of acceptance with my unskillfulness. What you're saying, I just I'm sitting here just having a ball with that. <laughs> that's a great example because that's accepting things just as they are. I mean, I okay, through the back else? door, yeah. Else? What else? Are you gonna go punch him out and take the chicken back? It just is. It just is. And and you know, and but, that's what life is. It just is. It's neither good nor bad. It is. And if I'm gonna have comfort, if I'm gonna have um, my, I'll use his word, if I'm going to have my equilibrium, my balance, then it is what it is. And that's it. And I let it go. And I keep going. Because that's just like everything else. It rises, lives a while, and then changes. And that's that too. That's the way I see it. But I like that. Thank you. Because that's something I can understand. <laughs> well, it's a very human approach to finding balance, I must say. I'm not proud of that, but I'm just relating that's the factual account of, of dealing with having a piece of chicken stolen. What do you do next? Well, that happened to me at one. Uh, it wasn't a chicken. Okay. I was visiting uh, someone who had uh, gone to an assisted living place. And so I had my little, uh, whatever it was, container of fruit to give. And one of the people living in the assistant living place just came over and just started taking the fruit I was bringing for my friend. And I thought, that's not for you. That's my gift. Yeah. And, and, and then, I, you know, I, what am I going to do? Go take it out of her mouth? <laughs> <laughs> You're stuck. So what did you do? I didn't do anything. Okay. I and I just said, well, there it is. There it is. And so I took what I had and I gave that as a gift. So two people appreciated the gift rather than one. <laughs> That's good. That's nice. Jonathan. Can I, can I ask you about Ahimsa uh, and the only reason? Sure. It's, just, it's, a, it's always to me been such a powerful uh, concept. Yeah. That I've never quite understood and maybe because um, I got beaten up a lot. So... I got to the point where no more. Uh, I would fight back, and and I'm always amazed, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Gandhi, Gandhi yeah, yeah. to to accept that kind of physical violence and not raise. Again, we go back to Jesus. Don't raise. You know, if they slap you on one side, give the other cheek. It's just not, again we go back to the human. The human would say, uh-uh. 
you hit me once, you try to hit me again, I, I think it's human for me. Ahimsa. Yeah. I think what maybe what you're talking about is an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and revenge. No, not revenge. Okay, but eye for an eye, not, tooth for tooth? Not re- no, not re- no, not even that. Okay. Um, no, I... I'm so you would hit you them so they would me. stop hitting you? I asked you not to do it again. Okay. You do it again, I'm going to smack you back. And that way they won't smack you back? Absolutely. Because the bully will keep bullying. Okay. Yeah. And I always... This Ahimsa thing where you just weary out... I mean, you just wear out the opponent. They just wore out the British. Yeah. Civil rights just wore them out. Yeah. So something got done. And we did too, didn't we? At the, when, 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 when this country came into being, mm-hmm. we had the Minutemen mm-hmm. just to hide behind trees. We were already here. They're going to leave sooner or later. They're all dressed in these red, you know. I remember the Walt Disney things, you know. And that's cool, cool. Okay, I, I look at it this way. Um, I look at it as either physical or mental. And, um, and so oftentimes it may be physical energy rather than violence. I think violence has a mind state of anger and hatred behind it. And can you hit him back without being angry? If you could, that might be nonviolence. But that is difficult. And let me tell you a Zen story about that. The, the Shogun, I might have already told you. Okay, yes. So could you take out your opponent without hating him? without having anger. And in the little article in the newspaper, when the police officer said, you know, I might have to use lethal force, what would you recommend? And I would recommend not to kill out of hatred and anger, but service or duty to the community. And, and, and in a way, that might be nonviolence. Hmm. Um, because their job is I to protect the... That, yeah. That idea of... Yeah. You don't... What you do is you disarm the person. Yeah. You... You, don't, you use the for, that negative force. As much force as necessary. Hurt, but just to stop. Yeah, as much force as necessary, which is what you were talking about. You, would, you wouldn't punch him back because you were seeking revenge or an eye for an eye or tooth for tooth. You just wanted it to stop. Mm-hmm. And so you, you had to show force in order for force to stop. Right. But, but if you could do it without anger or hatred, would it be violent? It's interesting. I, I'm, I'm not a philosophical person, well, maybe a little bit, but I, I, so that's how I sort of look at it. To just simply um, accept the violence, yeah, it, the people have done that, and it, and it can work, and Making Sense of the 60s was a, a PBS program a couple years ago where they talked about um, um, the um, equal rights for blacks and, and equal rights for women. And what they would do is they would practice being beaten, the blacks would, before they would march. And, and they would have certain ways that they could hide their head, not have, you know, a lot of damage done. And, and the group could get together and sort of protect each other. And yet they would never respond with any kind of action, any kind of violence on their part. And that message is so powerful, but it takes a certain kind of person to be ready to volunteer for that. I don't think most people are there. And so uh, I go back to mind states. Well, what are you feeling? How do you feel about that? Are you doing it because you hate them? Because you're deluded and thinking you're right and they're wrong? Or are you doing it so it'll stop? You know? So I, I, I wish I could give a better answer. 
but yeah, of course, man. I just I was in the paper recently because I guess the Getty I think has um, the, uh, a collection of photography, and it has that that image of the monk uh, during the Vietnam protest. Yeah, uh, so uh, Tick Quan Duke. We have a house named after him. Yeah. That is one of the most powerful images, and I guess I'm just trying to get an explanation of okay. that soul or that being. Yeah, it's it's not a Buddhist image; it's a political image. Uh, first precept in Buddhism is not to take your life, not to take a life, not to take anyone's life. If you haven't achieved nirvana. When you light yourself on fire, you're going to do time in hell, according to Buddhism. Not forever, because we don't have forever in Buddhism. But you'll be doing time in hell. You'll be able to visit Jizu. It's a political image. It was a statement. It was a political statement. And um, it's powerful. It's just amazing to see the potential meditators have of sitting quietly while they burn to death. You know? Uh, but that's not what Buddhism is about. And that's breaking the first precept. And, and for a monk to take his own life, uh, it's even, uh, even more demerit than a layperson. It did seem to change the course of the war because it brought attention to the plight of the Buddhists. And at that point, and, and please don't hold this against me, but there was a Buddhist Catholic thing going on. The Catholics were in power, and the Buddhists were second class, and they wanted to da 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 da, and the whole thing went up. I, I don't like politics very much when it comes to that. So, uh, has, did that really help Vietnam? Well, Vietnam became communist, we pulled out, and now we're doing business with Vietnam, building factories over there. I guess everything worked out the way it was supposed to. Did he need to take his life? Probably not. But there's a museum in, uh, I think it's Saigon, that has his heart in a bottle. Tikwan Duke's heart. And the reason his heart is in the bottle is because it didn't burn. And the Buddhists say it didn't burn because he had so much compassion. Yeah. It's interesting. But, uh, but we can't condone that. Why did they name the house after him? Uh, our founder, the founder of uh, our center, uh, his father burned himself too. And our founder wanted to burn himself as well in protest. And, and his father said no. No. So it's, it's, but again, that's politics. That's not Buddhism. And we have to separate that. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a whole article on that if you curious about the, you know, that. Yeah. Okay. Anything? Uh, it's getting time. Why don't we end our class with a loving kindness meditation? I think that'd be just a nice way to uh, end the five weeks we spent together. And I hope more than anything else you found it useful. I, I, I'm not assuming you found it enlightening, but I hope you find it useful. And, uh, and that um, when you see Buddhists now, you'll have a better understanding maybe of what they're thinking and what they're doing. And, um, and that it's not uh, mystical schmystical, but it's a way to live your life, I think. Is there a place, a dictionary for some of the words, for example, 
they're not uh, even in the uh, uh, mindful mindfulness. Uh, yes. Simple. Um, there's still terms that are used which the Buddhists use. Yes. And I, and I have uh, again. See, this is uh, online for free download. If you go online for free download, I have two. I have an encyclopedia available and a dictionary. A Pali English dictionary, which reads more like an encyclopedia, and you get the Pali word, and it has the English translation. And if you read that whole dictionary, you'll know a whole lot about Buddhism. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering. Just I could buy a little. You can buy it too. A teeny little. But if you get a friend of yours to download it and print it out for you, just buy him the paper. You know. So yeah, it's 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 available. Bodhi Tree Bookstore. Is a good is a good resource. The one in Melrose by the Pacific Design Center, they have those in stock. And uh, yeah. Okay, I, I was just wondering about that because even you use some terms that I know are are pretty common among the Buddhists. Yeah. Not not for me. Yeah, exactly. It's like me listening to Yiddish. You know, <laughs> everybody seems to know what they're talking about except for me. And I'm like, what does that mean? So it's the same thing. Okay. Yeah. May those of us who have come together tonight, in mind and heart, be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties problems and failures in life. May our parents, our brothers and sisters, our friends and relatives, all the people we don't know, all the people we don't like, may they too be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to them. May no difficulties come to them. May no problems come to them. May they always find fulfillment. May they also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. From the highest realm of existence to the lowest, may all beings arisen in any of these realms, with form and without, with perception and without, with consciousness and without. May they too be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to them. May no difficulties come to them. May no problems come to them. May they always find fulfillment. May they also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free, the fear-struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, and the sick find health relief.
Well, thank you all for taking this journey with me. It was a lot of fun for me. And I hope you had a little fun on the way, too. Well, that does it. That was Class 5, Part 2, in a series of talks I gave at Loyola Marymount University in the spring of 07. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info, K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to download some free e-books on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.